The Minding Your Mind podcast, raising awareness and breaking the stigma around mental health. That's what I see for a coma project is teaching people and giving them the skills so that they can find the best version of themselves for them and then share that with everybody they encounter in the world from a place of peace. Hello and welcome to the Minding Your Mind podcast. My name is Jordan Burnham, and I will be your host for today's episode. For this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing psychologist, scientist, and author, Dr. Alfie Breland Noble. Back in February of this year, I participated in a panel discussion hosted by the organization Our Minds Matter, titled The Solomon Speakers Panel in remembrance of Dr. Solomon Carter Fuller, the first African-American psychiatrist. It was an incredible experience to be on a panel to not only discuss my mental health journey, but more specifically, the ways in which the Black experience in America intersects with mental health. After the panel discussion, I emailed Dr. Alfie immediately with the hope that she could come on to the Minding Your Mind podcast and share the wisdom and inspiration that she shared that night. I was incredibly excited to have her on the podcast so that our audience could hear her perspective on a number of different issues that affect people of color, and also the way she takes care of her mental health in the midst of working to help so many others. Here's my interview with Dr. Alfie Breland Noble. Okay, with us today, we have Dr. Alfie Freeland Noble. Dr. Alfie is a pioneering psychologist with a passion for helping people of all backgrounds, especially youth and young adults, achieve optimal mental health. She's an in-demand media expert, keynote speaker, author, scientist, and the host of the Couched in Color podcast. She's also the founder of an innovative mental health nonprofit, The Acoma Project, which has received national recognition for its effective approach to engaging marginalized youth and empowering them to care for their mental health. Uh, it's a thrill and an honor uh, to have you on, Dr. Alfie. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, man, my pleasure. Like, I'm still <laughs> reeling because the last time we tried to get together, literally, I know it sounded like an excuse, but the power went out and it didn't come back on until like eight. And let me tell you, I was freaking out because I didn't want you to feel like I was like being dismissive. That was the big part of it. And then the other part of it was I was supposed to do CNN that same, like, right, I think right after you were seeing it. And I was like, like, this could not have come at a worse. So I'm so glad that, you know, this is a different day. We're here together. And I'm just really happy to be here because I love the meeting you when we, we did the event. I think it was Our Minds Matter. Mm-hmm. And just so eloquent. You just have such a, a gentle, <laughs> kind spirit. And I was just like, I would love to talk with him. So thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. So I wanted to start by saying, yes, we were on that same panel discussion, and it's clear from listening to you and reading and watching so much of your work how passionate you are about helping people. Um, So if I asked you to look back to growing up, where did that originate from? Oh, that's easy. So I just came from an event. um, We have a partnership with Starbucks, and they did an event for their, like, they don't call them special interest groups. I forget what they call them, but like, affinity groups. And this one was for the Asian Pacific Islander affinity group. And the reason I say that is because I grew up in a community. I'm from Virginia Beach, Virginia. And the community I grew up in was heavily three racial ethnic groups. It was African-American, Black, not a lot of Caribbean Black, not a lot of African immigrant, but what we traditionally think of as African-American. Very white. You know, white was the largest population in Virginia Beach back then. It probably still is, but not by quite as much. And then Filipino. Um, so I tell people I'm very deliberate. I don't say Asian American. I know that there were other Asian American ethnic groups there, but the one that was predominant and that still is, is the Filipino community. So Kumustaka to all my Tagalog speaking folks out there. Um, that was a big part of my childhood. And so interestingly, you know, now this could be a whole hour. I'm not even gonna lie, but it ain't gonna take that long. Um, (laughs) my childhood, the thing that was interesting about it was there were eight of us high achieving black kids. And I should say eight of us black kids who were given opportunities to be high achieving because there were a lot more smart black kids. But we were in those days, I'm I'm a Gen X person. So in those days, the 80s, um, we were tracked. Right. And it's it's like now you look at it and you're like, 
what the heck is wrong with these adults? Why would they do that to kids? And so the classes were um, honors slash superior. They literally were called superior classes, right? Average. I just like, I think about it, I'm like, so effed up and remedial. And all the black kids, black, our high school was probably 15, 20% black, probably not even that high, but it, all the black kids were in average classes and remedial classes. There were literally eight of us black kids out of my graduating class was like 890 kids. It was huge, in my opinion. Um, it was like, you know, there were like eight, the same eight, Alfie, uh, Michelle Reddick, like I know them all, Ava Adrian, the twins, Adolph, who's now a doctor. He's a, a big, big time psychologist. Um, there were a couple more. Peggy, right? The fact that I still remember, and it was a couple of Filipino kids. So that was my childhood. So it was very, it was super isolating because in my household, I was a queen. I was a princess. My parents were like the world, you know, the world revolved around me and my brother. But when I got out of the house, it wasn't like that. Plus some people can't see me, but if they go look me up, I'm a chocolate girl. And in those days, chocolate was not viewed as beautiful. We didn't have Naomi Campbell and I are close to the same age. She might be a year younger than me. Um, we didn't have Naomi Campbell. Then Naomi Campbell wasn't until like I got out of high school. So had we had a Naomi Campbell, maybe people would have looked at me a little differently. But so it was all of that and the the this the this the deep isolation that I felt. Um, as I was tweeting this morning with somebody who's also an 80s kid, and she said something about the go go's and the head over heels was her favorite song. I was like, oh Lord, that's my era. So I was one of these kids who love. I didn't love the Go-Go's. I liked a couple of their songs. They were badass. Um, and I loved rap, right? You got to remember, this is the 80s, right? So I'm LL Cool J, EPMD. Like, I was, like, into all of that. But at the same time, I like you, too. At the same time, I love being at the oceanfront. Like, I love being at the oceanfront, trying to learn how to surf and that kind of stuff. So just imagine, now that seems like, well, a lot of people do that, right? Like, I follow this uh, Black Mexican young woman who's a surfer. I adore this child. She just, all she does is post photos of her on the waves. I'm just like, that's my spirit animal. Right. And, but we didn't have that then. So I'd be the only little butterfly. I mean, uh, what do they call it? Flying the buttermilk at the oceanfront. So all of those experiences really fed my desire to replicate what I had in my home with two loving parents who were super sweet, very encouraging, right? We had some issues, but for the most part, I felt like I was brilliant. I felt like I was beautiful in the house. Cross that threshold, get out of the house. I didn't feel none of that. So I wanted to always be a person. Again, I told you it's long-winded, but I'm almost done. I wanted to be a person who created that sense of, I think what we call it now, belonging for other kids. Because I knew how desperately I wanted that when I was a kid. And my husband said to me this weekend, I was telling him like the big grand vision, like the world domination vision for a coma project and calcium color and everything I do with Dr. Alfie. And he said, Oh, it just like really touched me. You want to heal humanity. And I was like, yes, but that's it. That's what it was for me. And so what was the inspiration then for the Acoma project? Was it something similar to that? Was it it was a little different. Um, okay. A coma was because, right, there's the, now I'm hearing, if you're asking these great questions, I'm hearing this thread. I went into academia and spe specifically what we call academic medicine. So I was on the Academics podcast a few months ago and they asked a similar question, the host. And I forget her name, doctor. She's at UNC and she's a doctor, but I can't remember her name. I'm sorry, sis. Um, she asked a similar question and this answer is much shorter. And I'm learning at this age to be super direct. The answer is I was tired of being in a racist environment, um, racist and sexist environment where the kind of work that I was interested in at that time was not valued. So I spent 20 years as an academic, 22 total before I fully quit. And the Acoma project started in 1999. I had just like right on time I had finished my doctorate. And I went to the American Psychological Association convention and Dr. David Satcher, I idolize him, him and Maxine Waters, Lord have mercy. Maxine Waters, like, that's my, I just love her. Anyway, like Auntie Maxine, she's like an idol to me. So um, Dr. David Satcher for me in my career is one of those people too. So he had this report called, uh, mental, excuse me, Mental Health, Culture, Race, and Ethnicity, a supplement by the Surgeon General, something like that. And he was the first person I ever saw get up and speak directly to what I was passionate about, going back to what I said from childhood, which was being specific and intentional about naming the issues of 
different groups of people of color and saying there are unique and special circumstances that these groups have. We have a duty, so to speak, to make sure that their mental health. And he had this whole report. Right. And so that then gave me ammunition. So at the literally at the convention, after I heard his speech, I was sitting with a colleague. We used to be really close girlfriends. And I remember taking out a sheet of paper and I remember saying to myself, basically, the impetus for the Acoma Project, which was you got all these folks out here talking about these interventions they've developed. Cognitive behavioral therapy, that was just emerging as a big thing. Now we know that people act like that's the only way to treat. It's not, but it's one. Um, interpersonal therapy, Marsha Linehan's dialectical behavior, right? All of these people have developed these concepts. The problem is, one, you never tested these on people of color. None of those have, not in large enough numbers, right? And I didn't just say black. I said people of color. That's all of us who are black and brown and other hues under that, right? Two, you can develop these things, but if you don't find a way to get people into the clinic or into the office or get these, these interventions out into communities, who's going to benefit from them? So I said, that's me. My sweet spot, my space is getting people into care, which then we used to call, we still call it that treatment engagement. So I said, that's what a coma project is. A coma project is treatment engagement. We're going to, you know, help people. And so then over the years, that's all the research I developed. So people can't see me, but there's a book behind me. That book is one of the things that really speaks to that. And it's all about collaborations between community, people with lived experience, how you build this stuff for people, right? To help them with an issue if you're not going to work with the people you're trying to reach. You can build it, but if you don't talk to people with lived experience, then you can't build it in a way that's going to resonate with them. So that's really what a coma is about. And then over the years, it turned into, it was a research lab in psychiatry at two different academic institutions. I don't even need to name them. People heard me say them before. And then finally at that second institution, I was like, I ain't got to do this for y'all. I could do this for me and I could be free to do it exactly like I want to do it. And so we went from, I, I love to say this part, we just really started working with like a, a specialist to help us, I forget what you call them, consultants to help us hone our message and get cleared, not marketing, but like strategic, right? St strategic consulting. And then we came up with three parts of a coma. What are we about? One, we raise consciousness, right? All in the space of mental health for people of color. Two, we empower people, right? Just think about the, the theme. That's the thread from my childhood to, right? Building a coma. And three, we shift systems. We have to change these systems so that people feel like there is a place for them within the system. Because right now, a lot of us don't feel like there's space for us within the system. Therapy doesn't work for all of us. That, you know, that's people's, uh, many people's perception. So that's the coma. That's where it came from. And that's really what we're about as a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, what's the name of your book? Oh, um, Community Mental Health Engagement with Racially Diverse Populations. Right. Tell and me about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's 10 chapters. and what I love about this book and what's unique about it is published by, I never say their name right, Elsevier. I think that's how you say it. Um, I hope that's how you say it. But it came out in 2020. It'll be a year in July that it's been out. And what is special about this book, other than it's focused at the intersection of mental health, uh, people of color, and how do you build uh, community so that people feel like, right, it's that intersection. How do you bring people into mental health care? How do you take mental health care out to the people? But what's special about the book and what makes it unique is every chapter, the authors were required in order to put chapters in the book. I have a chapter with the Coma Project in there. You had to have community partners work with you. So that's either uh, advocate, uh, mental health advocates, other stakeholders, people with lived experience, um, youth themselves. Our chapter, if I remember correctly, our chapter is based on work that we did both with teenagers and adults. Um, collaboratively. So the book is really about teaching people how do you address these issues of mental health in culturally relevant ways in partnership with community. So one chapter is by a mentee um, who's Chinese American, and she's a school psychology professor at University of Maryland in yeah, College Park. And her chapter is about, I love her chapter, it's about how through a Chinese community center uh, in Maryland, uh, she is an academic person and then other community partners, including family members and all kinds of stakeholders, 
they built an intervention around, I think it was around reducing stigma um, in, in stigma related to children's mental health among Chinese Americans. Like, like stuff like that, that just, that gives me life. But yeah, that's what the book is about. It's really about how do you, it's, it's what a coma is about, right? It's community, people with lived experience and other people who want to provide support or work collaboratively with the end goal being everybody has an opportunity to realize optimal mental health. And you know, it's going to look different for everybody. So how do we make this something that everybody can see themselves attached to or see themselves within? And as I'm talking, I'm just thinking, right? This, this is the belonging, the same belonging I wish I'd had outside the house when I was a kid. So all of this stuff, I, for me, it, it really all is tied together. So I want to take uh, a bit of a, a sharp turn, but it's a, it's a necessary one because we're recording this on May 28, 2021. So uh, this past Tuesday marked one year since George Floyd uh, was murdered by uh, police officer Derek Chauvin. And I wanted to ask, uh, I want to have two conversations about this. Um, I wanted to talk about last year when this happened and then what we're talking about now. Because I think as a society, we were asking two questions at that at those points. Mm-hmm. So one part of society was asking, how could this have happened in America? How could this happen in broad daylight, a murder like this? And then there was another half of us who were saying, why now? You know, for me, I was in elementary school when I learned about Emmett Till, you know, being killed in 1955 and the injustice of Emmett Till. Um, I remember my best friend, Travis, calling me back in 2012 and he was saying, yeah, this this 17-year-old kid, he was unarmed, black, uh, he was shot and killed because he was deemed a threat because he was just wearing a hoodie. Um, and then the, the the name Trayvon Martin just never left my heart. It just never left my mind ever. Philando Castile was shot on my birthday, shot and killed on my birthday. Um, you know, Sandra Bland, I remember where I was sitting when I heard about Sandra Bland. So Obviously, there's a lot of names that we can go down and go to and stories that we remember and that we say over and over again. And they never get less traumatic hearing about it. Like anytime I see that Jet Magazine picture of Emmett Till, Mm. it it still affects me the same way every single time. Mm. And my biggest fear a year ago was that we were too focused on only George Floyd Mm. and only Derek Chauvin. Mm -hmm. Because the more we focused on only those two, the further we got away from police brutality and the systemic structures that were put in place for a black man to be murdered in broad daylight. And so I remember thinking back then we were having two conversations at the same time and trying to navigate those emotions and those feelings. So my first question is, last year, what was that like for you again trying to answer two questions at the same time? My first reaction is that I I was angry and I was angry because it was coming on the heels for me of all the names that you just, you know, recalled for us, as well as all the other ones that we haven't said, right? As well as thinking about things that happened to my brother. So my brothers were 18 months apart. And when we were in, he was in high school. I was, I was at Howard by then. Um, getting harassed by a white female cop who was not in her uniform. And they bumped into each other walking down a freaking boardwalk in Virginia Beach. And that turned into him and my, we have another cousin, Reggie, uh, getting caught up with the police. She need, she wasn't even in uniform. She wasn't even undercover. She wasn't even on duty. But she had the right, right, to weaponize that skin Right. And use it against my brother. So when, every time I hear these things, that's the stuff I think about. I think about having students. I literally remember this when I used to teach years ago. I had a and she was crying as she said it. A white female student who by her own account, she was she was an attractive woman who talked to us in class about how she had never gotten a ticket because every time she would get stopped, they thought she was cute. So they would let her go. It just and she and it, it was hitting her in that moment. This was in the nineties. How messed up that was because we were in a multicultural counseling class, and she was hearing all the black like we had. A, I was at Michigan State then, uh, students from Detroit and Flint, 
talking about what their experience and she was just like that was the first time it ever occurred to her what her privilege was i think about all that stuff comes back to me and then i think about the systems that are in place right think about the whole system of policing at this point a lot more folks know what it was born out of a whole lot of black folks like child we could told you that we've been through that you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. and if you didn't know you got you got hints or inkling right it's not about law or justice often it's about you need to be put in your place so all of those things come to me and i just think about systemically how many systems there are in place that build up and support even before you get to the justice system so you think about the education system what is that we teach kids in k through 12 and what is it that we don't teach kids or that we fail to teach kids that allow some kids to walk away or walk through life feeling like other people's humanness is up for grabs or it's not important, right? There are these three, four, maybe four punk rock girls, the Linda Lindas. I'm obsessed with these little teenagers. They wrote a song called Racist Sexist Boy because this white boy and these girls, they're all Asian, said, and they're like middle schoolers. His dad told him he shouldn't be around Asian people. And the little girl said to him, well, I'm Chinese. And she said the boy backed up. Now who is talking? Why would you tell a 12, 13? That's foolish. So I think so that, but that's a system. And there's nobody pulling that out of these kids in that system. So those kids do what? They grow up, maybe go to college, maybe go to the police academy. And then what? Now you got a badge. And the attitudes are still there. Right? So that's the stuff that I think about. And then I think about as a black mom, I got a son. I'm probably going to be your mom. Right? I think about like all the, the young men, black and Latinx, who can also be black, I've encountered in my life. I think about my spouse. I think about my dad. Right? My dad is a uh, baby. No, he's a veteran. He's a little bit older than baby. Boomer. He's like almost almost 80. He's not quite 80. The, stu- the stories he would tell me about stuff he went through in deep South Mississippi and how he says when that happened last year, he was like, baby, this is more the same. Like, how heartbreaking is that? This man is almost deep. At that point, he had been living 70 something years and he's saying it's the same stuff that I was dealing with when I was 20. What is that to do to people for a lifetime? So all of those things, that's the stuff that comes to me. So that's the one conversation, right? How these systems reify it. The other part of the conversation, I have, I had to like, I'm a spiritual person and I meditate a lot. I had to do a lot of meditating around not getting angry with my white brothers and sisters. This is not our country and I can't believe. Like, where have you been? Like, if you're my friend, if you're, if they're your friend, right? As black people, what do you mean you didn't know this we're your friends. Have you not been talking? Have you not been listening? Tell us, talk about this stuff, right? Because some of us been saying it. So that's the stuff that came to me. And then one thing I will add is as a mental health professional, a person who runs a mental health nonprofit, I was devastated by the reasons why, but the outcome was that you had this whole explosion of people who now wanted to pay attention to Black folks specifically and other communities of color, our mental health. So that's when the phone, our phones are ringing off the hook. Oh, CNN, that's the first time I did CNN. Two times in a week, specifically around George Floyd. Do you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, kudos to to the producers and stuff for for bringing Black people in to have that conversation. But at the same time, it's like, man, so this is what it took for me to have like some kind of national presence? Like, I'm not saying anything different. I'm not saying anything that all my ancestors and people who came, that's the stuff that breaks my heart too. There's so many people who came before me who are out there screaming and hollering and like trying to tell people to pay attention and you know, Dr. King was talking about police reform. I was the freaking 60s. And even before him, there were people, right? So like Bayard, Rustin and all these folks. So it was all of that. And that what I said on CNN a year ago, and it still rings true to me. This is never just about this moment. To exactly your point, for every Dante Wright, right, you can think of Sandra Bland, uh, Breonna Taylor, where you got all, Trayvon Martin. The one that, that just guts me is Tamir Rice, a freaking 12 year God, I just, I can't. That poor woman, I just, every time, I just, every time it just, I just burst into tears because my son's 14, almost 15. So it's never just this person in this moment. It's all these black people before. It's like, so that's what it is. That's what it, that's what it is for me. Those are the conversations that I was having. 
now a year later after George Floyd's murder, when I hear the question, what has changed? I think we're having two conversations at the same time yet again. As a Black man in America, my mind goes to policing and it goes to it goes to racial justice. It goes to the structures that have been put in place that allow something like what happened to George Floyd to happen yet over and over again. I think there's also people who saw progress and there was progress as far as the conversations that were being had about representation, about inclusivity, the acknowledgement of Black lives, and especially when it comes to our mental health. But at the same time, let's be real in saying that a lot hasn't changed and having that conversation too. Um, So how do you navigate those conversations? So what I would say as a Black mom, um, a Black wife, um, I'm deliberate, like we're in Pride Month, so I'm deliberate about saying my spouse is a man. um, Because I don't, I don't, I've learned to not make assumptions and I don't want people to make assumptions about me. Right. So I try to be very transparent about that because I think it's important, like properly gendering people, properly naming the context of your relationship. I feel like all that's really important. So I only say it for that purpose. Um, I'm a black daughter. I have a father who's very active in my life so much so that we share a household. I have a nephew who just graduated. Actually, I have two nephews. One just finished undergrad. The second one just finished his master's degree in architecture. Um, so shouts out to DeAllen and DeMario. Those are my my babies, even though they're grown men. But anyway, um, so, and there, there are lots of men in my life. Like even you, Jordan, like I think about you as a person. We don't know each other well, but I just think about how much this must weigh on all of you. So every time I think about it, I, honestly, I just get really sad. and. I, f- I can feel the tears like in the back of my eyelids, like coming up. I'm like, all right, Alfie, don't cry. Because I know how heavy it is for brothers, right? I'm a woman, so I know it in a different way, but I know it as a, a person who loves black men. Um, and so I would say in some ways, what has changed is you have a lot more people who are willing to be vocal. And I, I will have to say the the lead in that really is millennials and Gen Z. But I think what they've done is given Gen Xers in particular. I always feel like, and I don't, I don't say it in a complaining way, but I always feel like we're like the forgotten, like nobody really pays attention, but that's cool because we fly under the radar when you, you know what I'm saying? So like Gen X and older millennials, right? So those millennials who are like right now in their early forties, um, like 38, 39, so like 42, I feel like we're a generation of folks who's kind of sandwiched and I think, and forgotten. So I think what younger millennials and Gen Z folks have done is give us permission to name our truth. In my, in that sense, to me, that has changed things drastically because there was a time I saw somebody tweet yesterday. They were saying, oh, yeah, I think it was a black person. And they asked, this is speaking to this issue of what's changed. Why don't, they're talking about academia and in particular those of us, I came from academic medicine. Why don't faculty talk about their personal lives, right? They were like, because they make it seem like everything is work, work, work. And my response to that was, as a Gen Xer, that's what we had to do. We don't tell these folks that lots, most of us were working in predominantly white institutions. We don't tell these folks our business because anything you share, we were always like, it was a boomerang. It was going to come back to bite you, even if it was like simple stuff. But I think what has changed is, I feel like now, I don't think it's changed that drastically, but I feel like now I have a lot more permission to open my mouth and say words like, There's this thing called supremacy in this country, and it undergirds a lot of what happens in this country. There's this thing called structural racism, even though we always knew it was there. So that's what's changed is the lexicon and the terminology is more present, and I feel like it's more elevated, right? This whole argument around critical race theory, when you got these folks, Fox, TV, running around talking about uh, having vaccine cards, it's like the new Jim Crow. Are you out of your mind? Like, what? So, but the lexicon is there. Right. And so now we can talk about that's what's changed and people going out in the streets and protesting. What hasn't changed is some of this structural stuff. So when I think about policing, every for every step forward, I feel like there are multiple steps back. So, for example, Biden, President Biden and Vice President Harris, they weren't able to get their policing reform act. Right. He was like his goal was by 
George Floyd, by the anniversary of George Floyd's murder, he wanted it passed. And so that's what hasn't changed is the structural stuff. And that's the stuff that frustrates me because it reminds me of back in the day, we used to talk about with all deliberate speed. Now, this was a little bit before me in the civil rights generation, desegregation. And with all deliberate speed, anybody who knows history knows that means slower than a turtle. Deliberate is the key word, right? So if you're methodical and you're plotting and you're plotting, right? It's like running in mud. That's what they were doing. That's the part that I feel like hasn't changed. And those are the things that I think chip away at us. I believe in this term microaggressions developed by a black psychiatrist, Chester Pierce, a black Caribbean man. I believe in that. It chips away at you little by little by little. So that's what I would say for me has changed is the terminology and voicing it. And what hasn't changed is some of the structural stuff, which is heartbreaking because my kids just went out to go to the park and I have a son and a daughter and I always want them together because I fear for them being out individually. I didn't have that fear when I was young. When I was their age, I was out running track and playing softball and I would walk to practice and walk home alone. But I, you know, mm -mm. so that's what I would say. I'm thinking about your kids now and and having that conversation uh, about this generation. And and one thing um, I realized that some of my friends didn't get the same speech that I got when I was in middle school of like what happens when you come into contact with a police officer, what happens when you get pulled over? Here's what you do with your hands. Here's when you have your wallet out. The talk. those, though, the talk, those are the conversations that I think now a lot of people in this country are finally starting to realize we have yep. to have. It's a necessity. You think about how heartbreaking it is for a mom to look at that beautiful cherubic face at 12, 13, and you having to explain that. I want to say a bad word so bad. You have to explain that to your child. Like, what kind of, that's horrible. It's horrible on the parents or the guardians or whoever's rearing that child is horrible on the child. But think about how much innocence you're taking away from that child for no fault of his own. There's no fault of it. It's not just a police talk. It's when you go in the store and I'm not with you. This is how I need you to behave, right? It's the talk about, my mama used to say, she's deceased, usually you and your little friends, right? Because I had a very multicultural group of friends. She's like, you and your little white friends, look, baby, I'm explaining something to you. If the popo stop you, do you know what I'm saying? Like the Medea, if the popo stop you, baby, listen. They looking at you. They ain't looking at them. Right? It's that like, what is that to have to do to a child? So I think about you, right? And that beautiful face you have. I can't imagine how, you know, 20 years ago, however many years ago, your parents having to look in that beautiful face and say that. That's, that mess hurts. And that's hard on us as parents. As hard as it is on, on the, the young people, that's heavy, right? And other people don't have to deal with that, right? And that's heartbreaking too. They don't understand that. I mean, you can explain it. But I don't know if people really get how heavy that is. Do you think that's why certain people of color, they appreciate having a therapist or they appreciate having a psychiatrist who mirrors their skin color or yes. background? Why do you think that is so beneficial to the person themselves? I think for a lot of people, what they're looking for is like the, the new season of In Treatment is out on HBO. And Uzo Aduba from Orange is the New Black. Um, And there's so many layers to what resonates with me about that. Number one is remember, remembering her say that her mama told her, if these people out here can say Tchaikovsky and they can say, you know, all these other names, they can say Uzo Aduba, you know, whatever her full name is. She was like, don't even try it. Right. She didn't want them African moms. She won't play it. Like knowing that that's a part of her story. If she were my provider, it would just make me feel right. Just even seeing the name. Seeing a name that looks like something I recognize, right? You know, Rodnisha Jones or whatever. If that's my provider, at some point, we're going to have a conversation about how people used to be like shady and look at us sideways because we got these wild names. I don't have to explain that. And I think that's what people are looking for. So the what they see visually, that's a signal that there's stuff that I'm not going to have to explain myself to you in the context of of getting my care. I would say the same is probably true for people whose other, whose first language is not English. If you see that Latinx surname, 
you know what I'm saying? Or if you see that Asian surname, you're like, oh, well, I know what that is. That's Hall or that's Lee. I know what that means. So I have an idea. Um, or Rodriguez or whatever that person's name is. There's there's just this unwritten stuff and unspoken stuff that you assume, right? It's not always true, but that you assume you're not going to have to unpack in the context of therapy. And I have to tell you this quick story. So I had a girlfriend, super producer, television media, who was seeing a provider. And the day she stopped seeing the provider, he was white. So she, she said, I gave him a chance because I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to do that stuff. The day she stopped seeing him was right after Mike Brown was killed and she was in therapy. Now she's told this story publicly, so I, I can repeat it. And she said, I'm so anxious. I'm so fearful for my life and for the lives of my spouse and my stepson and blah, blah. And the white guy said to her, don't you think you're just overreacting? Right. That's why people don't want, you see what I'm saying? And that's why people, even if you thought it, man, come on, don't do that. If she's, like that's just like the perception of discrimination and racism. If you perceive it, it's racism or discrimination. I don't need you to explain it to me and break down why you, why it's racism. As a provider, my job is to just take you at your word. Do you see what I'm saying? And so I think what people are looking for is a signal. They're looking for some clue because they're already worried. Many of us going in because you're like, well, what these people gonna do? They gonna break me open, and I, you know, I don't. So there's some anything that can give you some peace going into the process. And I think that's what people are looking for. They're looking for that brown face. They're looking for something that says, you know, the person is LGBTQ or they're looking for a signal that says the person is a woman or a man specifically because they don't want to have to explain themselves when they're already in, coming from a place of being vulnerable and opening themselves up. That, but that's my opinion. That's what I think. And so kind of staying in that realm of getting help and talking about young people, especially when I think about teenagers, when I think about Gen Z, do you think the perception of therapy has changed? And the reason why I'm I'm actually saying this is because of social media, the amount of therapists that are on TikTok, the amount of therapists that are on Instagram and do all these different type of fun videos of grounding techniques, (laughs) things that they can do. So I was yes. wondering, do you think that helps this younger generation and how they perceive therapists and counselors? Yes and no. So it's one thing to see it on social media, right? But we always, I always want to bring people back to the reality of social media is one aspect of life. It's not the primary. It should not ever be the primary aspect of your life. In other words, you, there's a reason why it says IRL, right? That ain't social media. Right. In real life is what you and I are doing right now. This is face to face. This is voice to voice. This is I can read facial expressions. You can read facial expressions. That's real. What you what we see on social media now. I'm one of them people. I put stuff up on social media all the time. And it's really important for me that it's always from a place of trying to be supportive and uplifting, but also being real about mental health and how important it is. So it gives people a a lot more people a voice, I think, or it amplifies their voice more than their voices would be amplified did they not have social media. So to your point, it's wonderful to see grounding techniques. It's wonderful to see people break down things like how do you set boundaries? What is, I don't know, what's a personality disorder? Do you know what I mean? Like what is obsessive compulsive disorder? All of that's great. I think when it comes to people of color, I have to tell you from a a researcher's perspective, I don't see these huge drastic differences. Globally speaking, overall in terms of the people accessing care. I think that there are increasing numbers of people accessing care. Well, one, we don't collect enough data to really know. It would all be like, you know, sort of estimating. But when you look at the data that's available, SAMHSA, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, you still see these gaps between white people and basically everybody else who's of color in terms of use of care. Asian Americans are still at the bottom in terms of utilization of care. Uh, Native Americans, right? Black folks, Latinx folks, I think use mental health services in increasing numbers. But as our numbers increase as people of color, so do white folks. So you're not closing the gap in terms of proportion. All you're doing is keeping the gap at the same distance. You're like the same delta from, you know, between white folks and people of color. But everybody is using more care. So I think the other thing I would say is a lot of people use social media as their primary source 
of mental health information. I, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world, but we always want to encourage people, get it from multiple sources. Don't just go to one source. And then when you look at people of color, when you realize that only 4% of all psychologists are black specifically, uh, 86% of all psychologists are white. So it's 4% of us who are black and you got 10% is everybody else. And the numbers are so small for Native American psychologists. Like it's, I think it's less than 1%, right? Same thing is probably true for psychiatrists. It's not a lot of black psychiatrists. So, and I don't know the numbers for clinical social work and some of the other professions, right? My, my, I understand my fam, like you got psychiatric nurse practitioners, you got, a, you got LPCs, you got a lot of alphabet soup out there, but we're all very small numbers. So I think generally speaking, more people overall are accessing care. What I worry about is this gap between, and this is the other thing I would say that's really interesting to me. You have a lot of people out here talking about how great therapy is, but they don't go themselves. It's great for everybody else out there. And I'm going to broadcast it, right? But they don't necessarily do it. And I think this is often very true uh, for parents versus children. So the parents will say, oh, yeah, I want my baby to get some help until it's actually time to get some help. Or the kid gets in because the kid is adamant about it. Young person, young adult. They're like, well, mom, dad, you should come on because, you know, they say we got some stuff we got to unpack. They're like, oh, baby, I don't know about all that. Right. So. I think we get the impression that there's a lot, lot, lot more. There's more than, let's say, 20 years ago when I was well, 20, however many, 25 years ago when I was in grad school. There's more. But I still see these people having a really hard time getting in and staying in. I was thinking I do get asked that question often is, is why don't black people talk about mental health? And mm-hmm. one of the things I think over the years, as I've answered it so much and just being mm-hmm. exposed to so many parts of the mental health field, as far as getting the help, the therapy, the resources that are available in certain schools, certain schools mm-hmm. where there's one counselor once a week, other schools where there's mm-hmm. two every day of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was wondering how you try and, have a balanced conversation about it's not just the will or the want of people. Sometimes it's right there, the resources that are readily available that are not equally distributed. Mm-hmm. How do you balance that conversation? How do you talk about that? So part of what we do at my nonprofit and this, and I feel like this is the piece where that's the sweet spot. It is we talk about raising consciousness, right? So people just what you do every day, right? With, with this podcast, what you do with your public speaking, telling your story, like when you're on CNN and meeting the president and all, you know, when you do that, you put a face to something that black people need to see a face put to. They need to see you. They need to hear you, right? So we have to acknowledge that. And there are more and more people like you who are doing it. But I still, when I think about it, I can probably only name if you push me maybe six where I could say six black folks where I you know I know I'm saying and I'm saying who are not like um in entertainment let me say it like that who are not in entertainment whose job is to go out and advocate and tell people this is my story this is my experience this is how I I can think of three and none of them are women I'm just trying to think of who do I know um four and so one, we don't see enough people with real lived experience going out and talking about what they do. That's one. I feel like that's really important. I just thought of a woman and she runs a foundation. Um, I do think there's inequ- inequitable distribution of resources. But I my twist on it is thinking, of, again, about our pillars of the Acoma Project, our, our strategies. One is empowering people. I don't think people, black people, always feel empowered to go and get the help that they deserve. It's sort of you got to take what you can get. And a lot of people are like, I don't want that. Right. So if it's at the school, going back to your point at the school, how many black school counselors are there who are actually trained in mental health supports? I used to teach school counselors. So, you know, I apologize just to offend somebody. But, you know, it's a lot of these training programs. They're not teaching them how to be mental health professionals. They're teaching them how to be advisors. That's not the same thing, right? So we used to train, they're basically mental health providers in the school. This is like 20 years ago when I was in Michigan. All the programs are not created equally. So that's one, right? 
who's who's doing two what do the people look like who are actually providing the care in the school so let's say you skip over that hurdle and they're all trained and they know their mental health stuff and they got it cooking and they're amazing right which so many of them are um you ain't got nobody black and brown right and so and think going back to schools you were administrators in the school, which already creates barriers and a level of mistrust with a lot of us in black communities. I'm just thinking about kids and where the access points. So that's an issue. Then you have a lot of people who are really kind of paralyzed. They don't know how to reach out to black folk. They don't know. right? I get, now, that question I get all the time. What do I need to do? And then when I start breaking it down, they like deer in the head, like, damn, I got to do all that. <laughs> but yeah, you got to do all that. Right. Those mm-hmm. of us who do this work, this is the stuff that we do all the time. So anyway, I think those are some of the issues. And I think my twist on this inequitable distribution of resources is stuff like people don't give black people enough credit for being savvy consumers. So people want to run around and talk about I'm not going to pick on anything today. Run around and talk about these specific approaches to psychotherapy or specific medications. I have had many black people come to me and say things like who who they test their medications on. They got some black people up in that sample. And I'm like, wait a minute, how you know that? Right? And I'm like, well, what can I say? Right? Or you get, you know, you want me to do X, Y, Z, right? Tell me about that. Right? Super, super savvy consumers. And what can I say to them? Well, you know, we really haven't tested this on the left foot, but we're going to try it. Right? And so what I end up saying to people is things like, we're going to take a little bit of the best of everything. Right. And what you're going to get from me is my commitment. And this is the third pillar of a coma is to change the system by infusing and incorporating what I know about my culture, what I know about other people's cultures, what I have learned and taught other people about cultural competence. That's what you're going to get out of me. And I think I feel like that's the best we can hope for. But how many people are out there doing that? I'm not saying I'm a saint. Right. I don't even really see patients anymore. But you got folks out there who are trained in these traditional methods and who have cultural competence, but it ain't a lot of them. So what do families do, right? That's the inequity in the distribution. You're not requiring people to have this critical skill of cultural competence before you send them out and let them work with people. Going back to what you just mentioned about Black people feeling empowered, um, I'm glad that over this past year, people have obviously felt empowered and been able to use their voices and make changes in different ways. And for that part of it, kind of circling back, I am happy to see that change. Also, though, I want to bring it back to Dr. Alfie. With all the work you're doing, with everything you have going on, and the weight of the topic we even just discussed, how do you take care of your mental health? Yeah, uh, I appreciate the question. So every time I hear it, I just thank you for the for extending grace and asking. Um, I try to, I'm not always good at it. So let me say that up front. I just have to be honest. Today is one of those days where I'm like, Jesus, I got like a grant application I got to do. And then somebody wants to be trying to coordinate like five different events and it's nuts. But I come back to, ooh, child, you're going to make me start doing my praise dance up in here. Where I was five years ago when I was working for someone else and I was not happy and I felt like, it was just a crushing weight of racism and sexism and just this obliviousness to all of it. And I'm trying to tell people that what I'm doing literally exactly, literally exactly what I'm doing right now was what I was trying to do then. And they kept fighting me. So I remember what helps me is I remember, girl, this is all you, right? What people are like, like I'm getting ready to do this thing next week with one of the social media companies, never in a million years would I have thought I have a relationship. It's a distant relationship, but it's nice with a famous shoe designer that I used to look up to. I was uh, went to NYU uh, for my master's and I used to see his billboards all over town. And now we have a personal relationship like he's just a sweetheart of a person. And I'm like, all of that came after I got out of that toxic environment. So I come back to my gratitude. People say like, you know, it sounds hokey, but it's true. I come back to my gratitude for where I am now compared to where I was then. And I try to, it almost makes me want to cry right now. I try to hold on to that and remember I could be somewhere very different than this, right? So that's uh, what I do. I meditate a lot. Every day starts with meditation, at least 20 minutes, at least. 
just because I'm anxious, right? I, I really do. I know that I have generalized anxiety disorder. It runs in my family, right? Nobody else has acknowledged that that's what it is, but I know what it is. This is what I do. So I have to manage that. That's how I take care of my mental health. I exercise. I'm still in my workout clothes. It's completely disgusting, but I'm still in my workout clothes um, from like 10 o'clock this morning. But those are the things that I do. And I'm a spiritual person. So if you could, if people could see, I have all these signs up in my room. Like one of them says, dream big. I love mantra bands. Um, you know, the little metal bracelets that have sayings on them. One of them says, dream bigger. One of them, one of them says, just sweet bell. I am beautiful. Like I have all those kinds of things in my space to remind me. So I cultivate my environment. And then the other thing I'll say that I do is when I make my little videos, when I have time and put them on social media, where I get to talk through. So so now people will go look at the IG page and they'll go look at the YouTube page that I have. Every one of those videos that you see, nine times out of 10, I'm talking about something from personal lived experience, but I'm using it to teach people about how to take care of themselves, especially all the ones about toxic environments because I spent 20 years in two different toxic environments. And I'm always talking to people about you deserve better. You need to get out, make a plan, take care of yourself, put yourself first. When I'm saying it to other people, I'm also saying it to myself. And again, I want to reiterate, I don't always get it right. And I don't always do a good job because I don't want people thinking, oh, she's like Lottie and happy and roses and butterflies. No, it's many days I'm ready to like punch something. But <laughs> that I try to be, use active coping, be very intentional. I believe in mantras and I just believe in my mental health is one of the most important parts of my life. So I'm always going to put that first and I'm always going to put myself first. So 1999 is when you're sitting and you're thinking about the Acoma Project, about starting it, right? Yeah, good memory. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Did you ever see it evolving in the way that it has? And if if not, no. what would have been the biggest surprises or just the things that stood out to you along the way? The Honestly, the biggest surprises are CNN. This third time. Like, <laughs> what is happening? Are they like, do they know who they're emailing? Right? Are they sure they got the right email address? Right. Um, sitting on stage. I'm just being honest, sitting on stage with Taraji and Charlemagne. This was like three years ago. If I told you that story about how that happened, it would blow your mind. It was like, Ooh, chat that was none, but the, I'm telling you it was none, but the universe. Um, it all came together literally in about 18 hours. Like I had no, anyway, so I'm not going to get on that. That, uh, and then I think one of the biggest was when I got the piece of, ah, it makes me want to cry. When I got the piece of paper that said I had my 501c3. I don't know that I ever thought I would turn because it was my research lab, right? Like I wasn't thinking about making it a nonprofit, but all along the way, I can look back and there were like these really smart things that I did that weren't me. It was, I have a girlfriend, Kathy. She always said, that wasn't me, honey. That was God. And I'm like, yep, it was definitely God. Like owning my website and never using grant money to pay for my website, always paying for it out of pocket. I don't know what made me do that, but I did it for 20 years once I, you know, de developed the website, well, actually like 15, right? So it would always be mine. Nobody could claim ownership, right? I own the Acoma Project. That belongs to me. Like, I trademark the or copyright, whatever, all you know, the name and that kind of thing. So I think those couple of things. Um, and then just the last year, I could not have predicted how quickly we would have fundraised and the people the money came from. We just had a Finnish woman, she's a Finnish immigrant to the US, do a fundraiser for us, who she owns a tattoo parlor. And she's like she's in down south, like deep south. How do you even know who we are? So that's the kind of stuff like, God bless you and thank you. But, you know, so those things, just how much it has resonated with and touched people, even people who are not black and who are not of color. Right. So who've done things like send us on GoFundMe and they'll put a note in there. And that every time I see that, I just want to burst into tears. White people who will say, I want my child to grow up in a world where they know that everybody deserves an opportunity to be the fullest version of themselves. And so if I can give you this little bit of money and it's going to help some other child know that he or she or they matter, that's what I want to do. To me, there's like you never in a million years would I have imagined seeing something like that or experiencing something like that. I figured we could end by just having you talk about what optimal mental health truly means to you. Yeah. 
and what you hope to do moving forward to try and motivate people to find that? So to me, optimal mental health is that each individual person learns how to and makes an effort to every day function from a place that makes them feel seen, valued, and heard, that makes them know that they're cared for, and that operates from, honestly, from an internal place of love. Like you love yourself enough that you do everything in your power to take care of yourself, right? Because everyone's, and the reason I say optimal mental health is because there's no one way to have optimal mental health. It looks different for every single person, right? So I don't say like perfect mental health, or I don't say like, you know, this is your goal for mental health. It's optimal mental health because it's allowing you to function at your fullest potential. That's, I just, that's the vision. Like people should have a a right to function in the highest version of themselves. So to me, that's what optimal mental health is. You love yourself. You are, you, you make yourself feel seen, valued, and heard. I have this great mantra thing that I do and it's on TikTok. And the one that I love more than anything is when other people fail to see me, I see myself. When other people fail to hear me, I hear myself. When other people fail to love me, I love myself. That's what optimal mental health is to me. And then my vision, I have this whole thing, this guy named Cameron Harold, who's a business person from Canada. I'm pointing up. He's from Canada. And I read his book called Vivid, Vivid Vision. And my vivid vision is simply this, that, oh, why can't I remember it? So, so I have two, but the one that, that matters to me most is something to the effect of in every moment of every day, may you share the best version of yourself with you and with the world. That's what I see for a coma project is teaching people and giving them the skills so that they can find the best version of themselves for them and then share that with everybody they encounter in the world from a place of peace. Dr. Alfie, um, I wanted to say being on the Our Minds Matter mental health panel with you, it was amazing and it inspired me to really have this conversation moving forward. And so that's why I was so excited to have you on the Minding Your Mind podcast and for for you coming on and giving such great wisdom today. Well, it's my pleasure. I only wish you continued success. I wish you joy and peace. What you're doing is incredible. The people you touch and help without even knowing it right? I tell people all the time, sometimes your presence is an act of resistance. You showing up and talking about Black folks got mental health too. Black folks experience mental illness too. Let me tell you about my experience so you can get your mind right and go right minding your mind and take care of yourself. What you do is valuable. I'm not trying to deflect. I just, everybody needs to hear it. What you do is important. And it was truly only my pleasure to come on here and just babble for a couple of minutes. Uh, just one last thing. Please plug whatever you would like. Where can we follow you? Where can we find the Acoma Projects? Please, all yours. Thank you. So I am on all social media platforms. Lord have mercy. It's a lot of work. <laughs> uh, shouts out to all them social media managers and communications people out there. So it's Dr. Alfie. My kids, friends, they have a group of friends. They call me Drowfy because it's D-R-A-L-F-I-E-E. You know, come on, that's kids. Liam and Luke. And Max and Jake, I want to I want to ring their little necks. No, they're just they're adorable. So it's like Dralfi, Doctor Alfie, um, two E's on my first name at the end of my first name, and then it's a coma project. A A K as in kite, O M A project, all one word, and that's uh, a coma project dot org. That's like all like I said, all social media uh, platforms, and then finally. Um, I'll say I'm two things. I'm super active on Instagram and Twitter. Like I'm always on those, like always doing stuff. Um, and then finally, I have a podcast, Couched in Color, which you are going to be on for season three. We just wrapped season two, right? Voluntold, right? Like voluntold, you're going to be on this podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, so I hope people will. It's been my pleasure to be here with you. I hope people will follow. It's really less about me as a person. I'm always trying to encourage other people and talk about mental health and do exactly what you do. Raise and elevate the conversation for all those of us who 
feel like people haven't seen us or valued us or heard us. My job is to really try to be a person who makes everybody feel seen, valued and heard because that's what I want too. I want people to see me and value me and hear me too. Um, so thank you so much. Dr. Alfie, again, thank you so much for being on the Minding Your Mind podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thank you again to Dr. Alfie for taking the time to come onto the Minding Your Mind podcast. And I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. I truly appreciated just hearing all of the work that she's doing with her research and willingness to, as her husband described it, heal humanity. So a big thank you again to Dr. Alfie. If you haven't already, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, and leave a review for our podcast. And please know, I appreciate you. I appreciate you listening. And in case no one's told you today, you are loved, the world needs you, and are so glad you're here. I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into the show. To learn more about us, visit mindingyourmind.org.